Hello and welcome to this edition of the Frontline Gastroenterology Podcast. I'm James Morris, trainee editor at the Journal, and I'm delighted to welcome none other than Professor Pradeep Bandari, Advanced Endoscopy Lead at Portsmouth Hospital and internationally recognised expert in advanced therapeutic endoscopy, to talk about his paper entitled British Society of Gastroenterology Quality Improvement Programme, Implementing New Endoscopic Techniques and Technologies into Clinical Practice. Dr. Brandari, thank you so much indeed for joining us today. You begin the paper by describing how endoscopic technologies evolved in recent decades. Can you summarise the major ways practice has changed, perhaps over your career, with a particular emphasis on technological advances? Thank you. I'm delighted uh, to join you today because uh, as an endoscopist, I'm constantly coming across new techniques and new technologies. So it is a big uh, it's exciting, but at the same time, it's quite challenging. Uh, you're asking me over my career, which is so far quite short in the last 15 years. What I've seen is we begin to see a lot more. Uh, we were not seeing a lot of pathology before, which we can now see with the help of technology. Uh, we are now confused as to what to do with these pathologies that we are now seeing, which we didn't see before. So we are training ourselves very rapidly to deal with it uh, in order to avoid patients undergoing some radical surgery. And I think that's where endoscopy is progressing very fast. And we've developed this new breed of endoscopists called endosurgeons who do a lot of endoscopic surgery, which sits almost in between therapeutic endoscopy and radical surgery as endoscopic surgery. And that really has progressed a lot. I started in Portsmouth as a consultant physician with interest in gastroenterology. I then became a consultant gastroenterologist and no physician stuff, no general medicine. And for the last five years, I'm a consultant endoscopist. I don't leave endoscopy unit. I just do endoscopy. So there is a huge change in the way we work now. That's so interesting to hear how different people's career trajectories develop over time. Um, and you mentioned the big changes in endoscopic technology and perhaps how that is particularly shaping your clinical practice now as an advanced endoscopist. And you describe in some detail in the paper how the regulatory requirements for introducing these new technologies have um, been rather different uh, than what's required for pharmaceuticals, for example. Um, so could you just go into that for us a bit and how uh, the regulatory framework up until recently has been very different for technology? Yeah. So that's very interesting. What I want to do first thing is make a distinction between technology and techniques. There's novel technology and there's novel technique. Technologies are generally developed by industry uh, and techniques are generally developed by clinicians. And there's a big difference between the two, how both these hit the market. Uh, In technology, we traditionally have compared technologies and devices to the pharma industry. And we expected that the same regulation would apply to devices and technologies, but it doesn't. At the moment, if an industry produces a new device or a technology, they just need CE marking. And to obtain a CE marking till recently, all they had to do was prove some safety data. They submitted safety data, which could be obtained from tissue models, from animal studies, without even doing a single human patient, they could get a CE mark. And that's very interesting. I mean, there is advantage that this leads to very rapid introduction of technology into the market. But the downside is that we don't have robust data of its efficacy and safety and its long-term benefits to patients. 
So that's where we need to be careful. Can you give some examples of perhaps where it's been harmful to patients, some technologies being introduced too quickly? So I'm sure in UK, at least a lot of people will relate to the recent disaster with the hernia mesh, the mesh that we use for hernia repair, where we noticed that although it's been out there for the last five, seven years, people have been using, but the complication rates reaching around 20%, which is unacceptable. And when you look back at the history of it, this is the same way it was introduced that an expert center produced some data, few experts endorsed it, and off you go without any comparative data. And that's led to the withdrawal of that mesh and all those patients are now coming back to have the mesh removed and a new mesh being put in. So that is one of the downside of such an approach. So what have been some of the clinical and industry related factors that have shaped that regulatory framework and perhaps pushed technologies to be introduced more quickly than? That's a very interesting question because we shouldn't always find faults in others. We need to see the basis behind this. And the basis behind this is when a drug is produced, uh, it comes from a pharma company which spends millions, if not billion, producing a drug. But they are big giants, they have deep pockets, and they can generate a lot of money very quickly because drugs are generally produced like a blockbuster drug. So they can recoup their money very quickly. Devices, unfortunately, are not produced like that. The companies which produce devices are not giants like pharma. They start very slow and there's never a blockbuster device. It slowly evolves into something useful so they can never recoup their money fast enough. So that's why you see the big difference in the investment. So that's why the devices and technology companies just get a CE mark. There's no need to get a, a randomized control trial and a comparative data, but they just invest in marketing do very good marketing and push it out in the market as soon as possible. And one of the effects that you mentioned in the paper of that rapid introduction is what you call the hype cycle. And there's a very nice figure illustrating that. Could you, for the benefit of the listeners, just describe the hype cycle and the impact it has on clinical practice? Uh, that's very interesting because I think the hype effect is very interesting and applies very much to devices and technologies because uh, a device gets used by one or two expert centers. They are very enthusiastic. They're probably involved in developing that device. And their enthusiasm, expertise leads to very good results. Everybody looks at that. And then few of the other expert friends of theirs endorse it. And that produces a big hype effect. And everyone expects a lot that, oh, everyone, Professor A, B, C, D, all use it. They've endorsed it fantastic everybody starts using it and that's when the real effect comes out when it gets introduced everyone starts using then all this big hype and expectation gets dashed and that's when the dip happens again and the realistic picture begins to emerge and that's because we did not start with a very good evidence base if we had a randomized control trial right at the beginning we would not see that but unfortunately this is how the devices game is being played and what the figure then shows is a slight rise at the end. So perhaps you end up in a happy medium where yeah. it's not as bad as the trough of despair, as you say, but it certainly doesn't reach the height yeah. of the initial hype. This shows the learning effect that people then learn how to use it. They also know where to use it and where not to use it. Once that is sorted in our mind, we optimize the benefits of a device we have. And that's what happens with time. 
So moving from technologies to techniques, which you differentiated nicely for us, can you just describe some of the challenges in implementing new techniques uh, that are unique to that area of endoscopy? That's very interesting because uh, uh, I spend all my life, all my time in endoscopy and I always think, oh, I could do it this way. Let's create a new technique. And you have these clever ideas. You, you go to the industry and they say, well, I can't develop a patent on that. If I can't develop a patent, I can't spend my money on it because I can't get the money back. So that's the big difference is the techniques are developed by clinicians and we have to introduce it. And that's a hard way. We don't have the time in our life. We don't have the financial backup and we don't have a big marketing network to introduce it. So you come up with a very clever technique. You work very hard. You collect some data to show how good this technique is. And then you have to put it out to the community but then the big challenge is you have the burden of training the community in the new technique. The burden falls on the clinical community to develop a robust training mechanism in the new technique and introduce it with no financial backup. So that is a big a bit of a challenge with techniques. So this all lays very nicely the background to some important regulatory changes which you discuss in the paper which came into effect in 2017 in which the CE marking system, as you mentioned, was replaced by the Medical Device Regulations Directive. How has this changed the approval process for new technology today? So, uh, as far as I understand, although this MDR was designed back in 17, but it's only come in, coming into effect probably in a few weeks' time, uh, will be implemented fully. And the way I understand it is, now, a device cannot get a CE mark without getting proper human data. They will have to produce human data of safety and efficacy, and they have to promise to produce a post-marketing surveillance data and submit it back. So not just produce the data of safety and efficacy, but after introduction, they'll have to collect data and submit. Without that, they will not be able to get the approval. So I think this is a big step forward definitely will not lead to randomized control trial, but will be in a definitely better position than where we are. So following on from that, you nicely give some proposed solutions in your paper. And as part of that, you suggest one pragmatic uh, way to collect good efficacy data that might uh, lend itself to regulatory bodies, maybe to NICE, to the NHS, etc., is a type of phase two trial design which could be used in um, implementing and testing new technologies. Can you just describe what you think would be the key features of that for those phase two trials that you've suggested in the paper? Exactly. I think uh, for introducing new techniques and devices, that's a very good model. And NHS fits that model perfectly because we are uh, one big healthcare system just delivered by different hospitals, by different clinicians, but exactly the same system. And in England, we are a lot more protocolized, we're a lot more standardized, uh, and everyone has achieved a minimum standard. So that's the beauty that um, most of the subjectivity has been addressed. So rather than introducing a device based on animal data, it would be good after that to do a study with the device with six or seven centers who can have a high volume of patients to collect prospectively data from these centers and compare with their current practice, whatever currently they're doing 
they can compare. So you don't have to do a randomized trial. You can have a historic cohort from these centers and introduce the new technique or technology, collect the data prospectively. The research governance in UK is the best, I think, in the world. We can really trust that data, and that will be very useful then for the community to see the efficacy in the place of the new device and will help a lot for bodies like NICE and CCGs and our own hospitals and business managers to make a business case to introduce these techniques. And what sort of role do you think other non-industry bodies such as the BSG, our own professional body, um, could play in improving the process of implementing technologies and techniques like this? I think BSG is quite active, but BSG has so many problems and priorities. So to prioritize everything is very difficult. So BSG has a much broader and a bigger view of everything. But the endoscopy committee in the BSG is really pushing hard. And I feel the future in future, BSG should be actively looking out for new technologies, actively looking out for new techniques, producing some position statements to guide the community, and then facilitating some national registries of the UNIS techniques and technologies. And if we can collect national data like that, that will put a lot of insight into these techniques and their outcome and will help improve them and to get regulatory approvals from NICE. Professor Mandari, this has been a very informative discussion and I hope readers will be uh, pushed to go and read your paper in more detail because it really gives an excellent landscape about um, how new technologies are being implemented. Could we just finish the uh, discussion with a few take-home messages for the readers? So a few take-home messages for the readers. First thing would be uh, as an endoscopist, we are always looking for new toys because that's how we are programmed. Uh, so that's good. There's nothing wrong with that. But be very critical. Don't change your practice just because uh, Professor A or Professor B said that this is the best thing that has ever happened. So be very critical and see exactly how it will fit into your practice. Second thing to remember is please don't read literature and change your practice because endoscopy is a skill-based subjective uh, uh, field where outcomes depend on your skills, on your experience. And so the outcomes are very subjective. Just because a randomized trial says that ESD is better than EMR doesn't mean that you can go home and produce better outcome than EMR with ESD. It doesn't work like that. So you have to really train yourself, invest, and produce your outcome as good as the published outcome, only then you can change your practice. So it's very important. And then see the industry as your friend rather than an enemy and work with them and guide them to produce good quality data. And I think that's the way patients will benefit, we will benefit, and we'll all go forward in a very nice way. Thank you very much indeed. Well, that brings us to an end of today's podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Obviously, a huge thanks to Professor Bandari for discussing his paper with us today. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do rate it on your podcast provider. So until next time, goodbye.